Welcome to another episode of Thoughts of a Trillionaire. <laughs> it is 9.42 a.m. Tuesday, October 27th. We got another episode, another entry on this audio journal. I think today is going to be a continuation of yesterday. Deconstructing Myself Part Deuce. Let's see. So, when I think about my problems, my faults, and my issues, once again, I think about things like procrastination, insecurity, uh, lack of confidence. Sometimes I even think about lack of skill, not lack of aptitude. I know I can learn things fairly quickly, at least if I... I'm good at that thing. <laughs> but I fear that I have a I'm too much of a generalist in many ways. Even though I'm still young, I have a lot of time to gain a mastery of something. But as of now, I'm not really a mastery of anything per se. Maybe of ideation. But even that, there's so many other methods of ideation that I don't know. I could probably say thinking <laughs> in some aspects, but once again, there's so many other aspects of thinking that I don't know. But yeah, those are my main faults, I believe. Inconsistency, that's another one. That could be a really a example, a... Uh, Continuation, I don't know. It could be related to procrastination, basically. That leads me to be cons inconsistent. So when I look at my past, once again, to talk about yesterday. Look at the environment in which I grew up in. You know, it was definitely a scarce environment. Definitely an environment of scarcity. We lacked many resources. I've gone multiple times, you know, without things like food, water, electricity. Uh, always had shelter in some way, some aspect. But <laughs> remember this one summer, um, it was super fun for us. Like we, it seemed like we were having a good old time. But um, basically, what had happened was, in reality. <laughs> Got kicked out of our house and we had to, for a whole summer and a half or so, going into school or near the end of school and then going into summer or into the other way around. But anyways, we were just like going around to a bunch of, not hotels, but like motels, like inns or whatever you call them. Um, I mean, Again, it was fun for us because it was like an, <laughs> an adventure, but now I look back on it and realize what, what actually happened. And uh remember other times when, I don't know, it was just a lot of times. But again, it's, it's kind of hard for me to, to look back at that time as a dark time. And I wonder why. I think it's because of my parents, especially my mom, um, who's always been just very, not necessarily optimistic, but she was never necessarily pessimistic, right? She was always just 
supportive. Always just that loving figure, right? But we never necessarily felt like it was um, our fault per se, because I've I've heard horror stories of <laughs> of other people in, in in similar instances of you know going through poverty or whatever, and their parents is just like just out the wazoo with that mess. Like either the parents are uh, constantly abandoning the children, you know, going about doing all sorts of things, or um, the parent was on like drugs or something like that, or the parents were abusive, or you know, any number of problems, right? So even though my siblings and I have kind of suffered um, due to poverty, we never really suffered from that bad of an abuse. I say that bad because it's still. You know, some levels of, I don't want to say, I'm not sure if it's abuse per se, but <laughs> I don't know, psychological warfare in a way, or just, mal- just I'm going to be honest, not great parenting. <laughs> Again, not necessarily by my mom, but, you know, in our household. And um, I wonder if some of my problems come from that, you know? Perhaps, perhaps not. But either way, I do know that there's just this. There's just been this feeling that even in the the worst times, you know, being being poor is just not that bad. Right. That's how it's kind of in my head. I wonder that maybe that's why I don't have as much of a drive, per se, as much of a push to get out of poverty as I feel like I should have like when you usually hear people who are in similar straits who are impoverished and stuff like that like you know only wore the same pair of shoes or the same outfit every day at school I'm like yeah me too I literally still wear clothes that I had since middle school I didn't think that was a big deal (laughs) I literally have like outfits that I've had since high school I don't wear them as much anymore because, you know, they're kind of frayed. <laughs> but, you know, this was very normal for me. So when people talk about it as if it was some horrible thing, I'm just like, really? And I wonder if that's a bad thing or not. Like, would I have more motivation if I would have suffered more? <laughs> I don't think so because, like, a lot of people have suffered very, very, even worse. And yet, you know, they're not, they're not driven. You know, they kind of got beaten down. I think it's a very rare, very rare occurrence when you have people that have faced, you know, deep levels of poverty and are still able to dream and, and have that drive, you know. People all say all the time, adversity, um, it's like that motivation, you know, these people who, who, who suffer can really can really just strive for more you know they have that hunger but my problem with that is that it really depends (laughs) it really depends on your parenting it really depends on your situation it really depends on your personality on so many things that are not really in your power you hear people stories of you know immigrants for instance that's a great example of how you see this difference why is it that immigrants can come to america 
and a lot of them can you know start businesses and stuff like that and then their next generation is even more successful you know they start bigger businesses or whatever right you can you can list these out a lot of maybe i think what maybe half if not more maybe 60 percent of our um of our big companies were founded by immigrants you know a lot of them are are second generation immigrants meaning their parents came and hustled a lot so that they can get to college or you know they can you know start businesses or whatever and then the the, the next generation that second generation they started these bigger really successful businesses became millionaires and billionaires so why is it that these people you know a lot of these people i'm not sure the actual numbers so i can't really tell you but we hear this a lot that immigrants are more likely to start a business or just to have that find that american dream than people who are actually born in america who have been here the last couple of generations all right I, I, and I'm, I'm trying to wonder why that is is it because of something I'm, I'm talking about here like similar to my life where you are raised in the culture and I'm, yeah I actually I do think that is it you're raised in the culture where I'm talking for people who are you know not really immigrants per se um, so you're raised in the culture where people just have been beaten down generation after generation right where your mother your grandmother or your grandfather your father great-grandfather your uncles aunts all of them right they've all were raised in this little town usually it's small town type of thing maybe i mean it could be city people too but either way they, they're kind of raised in this community Maybe they had dreams of, you know, um, doing something big, but things happened. It could be medical problems. It could be, you know, tussle with the cops. <laughs> it could be falling into drug abuse. It could be, you know, any number of things that happens. And then they couldn't do that. They couldn't, you know, chase their dreams. And so the next generation comes up. And usually in that one, you know, the parents are like, you can do this, right? You you can follow our dreams. <laughs> you can do the dreams for us. And so now the kids are pressured, right? They have extra pressure. Not only to, you know, live the life they want to live, but also kind of live the parent the life their parents wanted them to live. And so the, the kids are now, you know, have that double pressure. But... Because their parents still have not really figured out that life, you know, how to live a better life. They're not really giving them good insights. They're not really giving them good advice into, you know, investing or starting a business or, you know, going to school or this, that and the other. They're trying to make them do things that they think are practical based on when they grew up, but either those you know, truths aren't really relevant on anymore or they were never relevant or any number of problems, right? So you, these kids grow up with bad advice. They grow up with bad habits. They grow up with, you know, just just on the wrong path. So they're already on the wrong foot. They're already messed up. Their education system, 
their their the schools that their parents can get them into are not very good full of other people who are you know don't really care about <laughs> you know much um who are themselves already beaten down bullies or just um materialistic people um any any number of problems right and so these people grow up and again they never achieve those dreams and then that problem gets compounded once again on their kids they start seeing you know you see this pattern of the kids being the hope for the parents they get more pressure but the parents don't really know anything about what to do about how to find resources how to do much of anything maybe every now and then you might have some good advice <laughs> come through because of course you can't live in this world without stumbling upon something right but it's not enough it's not enough every now and then maybe you know out of many if, if a parent has enough kids <laughs> maybe one of them will succeed right maybe one of them will catch on maybe one of them will accomplish something but then that even that person feels bad that person feels like the problems of their neighborhood of their community is too big for them to solve so they just move out <laughs> they just leave it behind and so it's kind of like a drain so even the few successful people in that neighborhood in that community are never really never really go back to help even if some do maybe maybe one or two do maybe <laughs> at the small percentage that get successful there's a small percentage that come back and try to help but it's just not enough because there's so much problems there's so much multi-generational um depression right and it's just not enough and so as you can see there's a cycle of disillusionment of hopelessness of problems but for immigrants you know they came from a place where not only was it hard like you know it can be for places in america but they may have came from places where there was like actual war they may have came from places where you know there were battles with cartel or you know with religious extremists or with you know dictators or any number of problems so they know not only the face of adversity, they know the face of fatal adversity. And that's even a deeper, you know, kind of survival, survivalist mentality. When you're facing something that could literally end your life at any moment, that's, that's different than, you know, can I survive the next couple, you know, weeks or days or whatever if I, if I, if I hustle enough. You know, it's a different sort of adversity. And so the people who are able to survive in that fatal, you know, ecosystem, they are inherently more driven, not because they are better people or, or more talented or, you know, maybe they are, maybe they're not. It doesn't matter. The point is that they have to, they had to face fatal, you know, consequences. They had to. It was literally succeed or die. And so the people who are able to come to America or to immigrate really to any other country, you know, with that mentality, survive or die, they are inherently more driven. It's just a fact of life, right? If you face down, you know, <laughs> a dictator, if you face down religious extremists, if you face down cartels who held you at gunpoint, 
you know, you're going to be more driven. And so when they come over, they teach their kids how to really be driven. You know, they may not be able to hold them at the gunpoint. They're not going to do that. But they're going to teach their kids as best as they can, you know, how to work not just hard, but how to work stupidly hard. <laughs> and some people, you know, some teach them how to enjoy it. Some some just teach them how to, you know, how to uh, shoulder it. How to shoulder that, 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 that hustle, the stress of that. You know, hustle because they say, hey, it will be worth it. We came to America from this really bad place, you know. So maybe you're here, you know, you're not facing death every day, but you can do, you know, you can do so much more. So they have both that drive and that hope. And so even if they don't teach their kids the best things, they can teach their kids how to be, how to overcome any obstacle because at the end of the day any most obstacles in America is not held at gunpoint <laughs> you know that's the major difference between a first world a quote unquote first world country and you know not is that you know your adversities are bad yes they, they suck yes they're terrible but at the end of the day it's not somebody holding you at gunpoint killing you your, your, your family you know yes we do have violent crime here but it's most of the majority of the time it's the crime of passions like in the household and stuff like that it's not some outside force you know knocking on doors <laughs> asking for tribute or you're gonna die or you know follow their religion or you're gonna die or you know this that and the other you're gonna die you know and so they teach their kids you can do it, you know, you can do it. You're going to do it <laughs> because nobody's holding you at gunpoint. You know, there's, there's no, there's no, there's nothing that can stop you. And so, of course, they're going to be more driven. They're going to, and at the same time, they're going to have more hope. And at the same time, they're going to have more, more to be thankful for. Because they, 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 you know, their parents might have told them where they came from. They can see in the news where they came from. And so, of course, they're going to be more thankful. They're going to be like, oh, wow. Right. But person who was born in America, all they see is that their parents strive, may have strived for something and they failed. Their grandparents may have strived for something. They failed. Everybody around them, their community has strived for something. They failed. And so you're just looking at failure all, all around you. And you're wondering why, you know, what makes me different? <laughs> Who says I can succeed? Like, how am I supposed to succeed if all these people failed around me? And so for me personally, I'm kind of in the middle of both of these. You know, I kind of feel like the middle child in that regard. Because my grandparents, you know, my mother's side, technically my, you know, I'm not sure much about my biological father's side, but, you know. They came from Haiti. You know, Haiti is a tough place. But with Haiti, it's it's kind of 
a strange place, right? There, like, there is some violence there. Don't get me wrong. But most of the problems comes from this inherent uh, system of, of, of racism, really. Like, the, a, lot of the, a lot of the lack of resources they have is from, you know, people coming to take their resources. Yes, there is, you know, gang violence. There is, you know, a bad government who can, you know, do some terrible things. But at the end of the day, most people in Haiti, you know, they don't necessarily live lives where, you know, they're facing that violence every day. Not like it can be for, for other immigrants from other places. And so, like, my grandparents, I don't even think they were in the lower... I don't want to say lower class, but, you know, in the lower class. It's very, very classist in Haiti. Super classist. You know, they had a nice place in Haiti. They just came over, you know, for more opportunities, for more businesses and everything like that. My granddad, he's always been doing, you know, all sorts of business. Um... I think he has been through some tough, some really tough stuff in Haiti. He doesn't really talk about it, so I have no idea. But <laughs> um, my grandmother seems to be, you know, a little, may have been a, a little bit more um, upscale. She's more on the French side. And in Haiti, if you know anything about Haiti, it's like they have that class system where um, the high, the upper class, you know, they know French. <laughs> Right, they teach their kids French and all that stuff, and learning, you know, Creole is is seen as country. A lot of the 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 kids who go to the you know regular public schools, you know, who only know Creole, have Creole names and stuff like that, is seen as country, more uneducated than if you were able to go to a school where they teach you French and stuff like that. It's really really weird system but yeah for my you know my grandparents that came over and someone from what I gather you know they didn't have that much of a push right don't get me wrong they they, they wanted that excellence or you know it was kind of pushing my parents um, my mom her siblings and stuff like that to be good in school and stuff like that of course you can either be a doctor or an engineer that type of stuff right but it wasn't like from what I gather it wasn't like a super push it was more they were more focused on religion <laughs> right be a good Christian good Seventh Day Adventist um but they still had that entrepreneurial thing, the entrepreneurial bug. My granddad always had, you know, <laughs> all sorts of businesses. My grandmother, you know, that typical stay-at-home type of thing. <laughs> but um, she eventually had her own bakery. So they had the entrepreneurial bug. So my mom got that as well. She's always trying to do her own thing. But what I realized is that, you know, there were that type of strictness. Like, what happens with that type of strictness? 
of you know you can either be a doctor lawyer or engineer or, or else you're a failure <laughs> right you have to go to church every day you know or else you're you're sinful blah 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 right that type of strictness it ends up either radicalizing you know the kids or making them more apathetic sure there's a middle ground in there too but you get my point is that you know they sort of take to it or they don't and my mom she sort of took to it at first but she just got tired of it right and they tried to set her up with an arranged marriage like my, my biological father is it was basically an arranged marriage in the 90s it's crazy right <laughs> so that wasn't going that wasn't going to fly he may have been abusive I don't really know I don't remember much but you know when we left that was it so my mom has always been like on a search for you know what what she has enjoyed like what she wants to do right and so she raised us with that same kind of openness you know she wanted me to do good in school and all of that but she ain't she didn't try to push me to do some crazy st like you know like put undue pressure onto me and for me school was always easy anyway so it wasn't like <laughs> I really enjoyed school, actually. <laughs> but as I look back, I realize that, you know, I just didn't have much pressure <laughs> growing up. Even even in the situations that we were in, right? I didn't have much pressure. We didn't have much structure either. I think that's why I crave that structure now. That's why I even crave that pressure now. You always hear that kids growing up, they, they, they need structure. But, you know, when you're in a, again, once again, in an environment of scarcity, what structure can you have? You know, what can you depend upon to be the same every day? To, to, what can you depend upon to be a good routine, a good habit? When, you know, you're not really sure exactly what you're going to eat. <laughs> you're not really sure exactly if you're going to, you know, have be able to pay the bills and just as a kid you know you're not really sure if you're gonna have internet <laughs> next month you're not really sure if you're gonna you know when the when the water goes out when the electricity goes out you know there's a number of these problems that happens there's whenever there's a medical whenever a medical problem happens whenever a car breaks down There's always a problem. There's always something that happens. That's, that seems to be the only thing I could really depend upon in terms of structure growing up. Is that there's always something that's going to happen. <laughs> and so I wonder if that, you know, once again, impacted who I am. Probably did. So the question is how? How did it impact me? You know, what did I take away from that? And how can I overcome that or use that to my advantage rather than to my disadvantage?
And I think I've found, you know, some of the answer. I realize that I'm very adaptable. You know, I can adapt to change very well. I don't really panic very much. I don't really stress about things that are, that just happen out the blue, you know. (laughs) I can adapt very well. So I know I can use that to my advantage. So my question is also, you know, how has it impacted me negatively? How has a lack of structure and a lack of um, resources and a lack of pressure, you know, how has that impacted me negatively? That's what I'm trying to figure out. been a pretty long podcast but I feel like I can keep going you know I'm pretty open this morning I do feel like I'm figuring stuff out so yeah I'm uh, we're gonna go ahead and keep it rolling <laughs> you can always pause and come back or you know pause and ask yourself these questions yourself you know try to figure out your own issues <laughs> everybody has issues right that's the thing about being human is that none of us are perfect. Even those of us that have, you know, had that fortune, that have been raised in a in an abundant environment, they're still, you know, not perfectly abundant. They may have lack support. You know, their parents may have been working too much. Even if your parents made $200,000 a year, you know, maybe your parents are working too much and you feel like you don't have that connection or something. I don't know. <laughs> but everybody has problems. And so hopefully, you know, this podcast, this journey into my own <laughs> issues will help you figure out yours. You know, will help you ask the sort of questions and, and, and quest down the sort of paths, the sort of history that will help you determine, you know, what has led you to where you are now. That's kind of my hope in sharing these these ideas, these raw thoughts <laughs> and being so vulnerable. Is that I hope it helps people be vulnerable with themselves. Because I realize that a lot of people are not vulnerable. Even with themselves. Right? A lot of people are not self-aware because a lot of people are scared. To peek into their own history. To deconstruct themselves. People are scared of what they'd find or what they won't find of... You know what they may have went through or that they're not strong enough to relive that that issues those issues so. but to get back to uh what I was talking about um, so yeah you're not really I'm kind of I'm very, very, yeah, I'm very much grateful for, you know, the childhood that I I lived, for the fact that even though it was bad, it didn't feel bad, right? Like, my my mother never really, well, (laughs) I was going to say my mother never really stressed about it to us, but I think another one of my problems is that my mother kind of internalized that stress. You know, it's something I've, that I've noticed about her. You know, that she kind of thinks, keeps things to herself. 
Um, and that made me feel bad because, you know, as the oldest, as a, as a firstborn or whatever, I'm not sure if it's just a thing of all fir- firstborn people, all eldest siblings, but you just have that inherent responsibility, the inherent sense of, you know, I need to help. <laughs> um, and I don't know, you know, other siblings have that too. But I just, in my experience, I just haven't seen them have it to the extent that I do, right? And I feel like I'm responsible for my siblings and my parents too, like, right? Because I need to help them. I'm the oldest. <laughs> I'm to an age where if I know what's going on, then that means I, I should be old enough to help, you know? So I used to try to start like little businesses and <laughs> earn some money to help around the house. Um... I always used to do my best to clean up and uh, to just don't con- to, to not contribute to the stress that my mother felt. That I know my mother felt, but she never really, you know, said or put on us. But I could see it, you know. I could see it in the way that she struggled. I could see it even in the medical problems that she had. I really feel like a lot of those problems have, you know, come from stress. And I felt so bad that, you know, I had all these ideas. Like, I was always an idea generator. I was always a, um, I came up with this idea of freaking hover cars. You know, I was interested in that for a long time, since third grade. And I thought, you know, that would be my, my contribution. If I could invent hover cars, you know, I could really take my, my folks out of this situation, you know. Help my mom so that she never had to worry again. But that never panned out for me. You know? I didn't have that level of aptitude. I didn't have the lo- the, that, that, those resources. And to be honest, I didn't have the, uh, the wherewithal, the drive to, to go and find those resources. So... For me, hmm, had that sense of failure, you know, at an early age. Had that sense of inadequacy from my early age because, you know, I had these massive ideas. (laughs) But I just didn't seem to have the skills. I wasn't enough. I wasn't talented enough, I wasn't, you know, um, social enough, I wasn't, I don't know, smart enough to figure out this, this idea that seems like has been gifted to me of hover cars and inventing the things, because I've, I've read, you know, stories of these people, you know, inventing things, this is before I really got into, like, the whole technology era, like, I didn't know anything about um, Fortune 500s or startups, but I've read a lot about invent- inventors through the, through history. I was always interested in history, you know. I read about you know the Wright brothers, Einstein. I read about people. I remember because I used to. I told you I love school, so I I always realized I knew I wanted to go to college. I read about people who who um, went to college. And, and you know, as teenagers, I remember there was this one story of a um, 
of a kid from I'm not sure what country, some country in Africa, um, who built some I, I forgot exactly what it was, but he built something out of like junkyard scraps from his village in Africa and then applied to MIT at the age of like I don't know, somewhere between twelve and fifteen. But, you know, he got in. He got in from that. I was like, dang, why can't I do that? Right? I read that in ninth grade. I remember I was like, dang, why can't I do that? I read about all these people. And I was I was big into reading uh, fiction as well, of course. You know, the stories of Harry Potter and um, you know, the stories of, you know, the Demonator series or Artemis Fowl or, you know. All these stories of, of young people who could accomplish so much just through their own smarts or drive or, you know, um, what's the word? Grit, I guess, you know. I used to hate that word afterwards, after graduating high school, that word grit. Because I felt like it was a, it was a condemnation of my failures. It was a... <laughs> Showing you everything that was, you know, a failure of. Because I read so many of these stories about kids, real and fake, who accomplished so very much. And yet here I was with these massive ideas, these massive dreams, and I couldn't accomplish any of that. Like, I was really a weird, like, I literally read the theory of relativity in, like, 11th grade. I read my first science book on electromagnetism in in fourth grade, I think. Like I read most of the books in the library in all the schools that I went to. And I've been to one, two, three, four, five, I think at least five different schools. Well, a lot more than that in terms of earlier years. But my later years when I really started reading books, you know, I've I've binged through those freaking libraries. <laughs> you know, I was a huge, huge absorber of knowledge, huge sponge of knowledge. And yet, it felt like of all the the things that I you know read and learned, first, not much of it stuck. Like I never really had a great memory. <laughs> I could read a whole bunch and I could internalize it. I could understand the concepts of it. But then I would forget most of the facts. Like, I can't tell you the book titles I've read. I can't tell you, you know, even though I know a lot about history, I can't tell you anything about the dates or people. <laughs> I always do. I had a terrible memory. I did so good in school because, you know, I understood the underlying concepts of, of anything from, you know, math to science to history to language arts. But anytime there was a pop quiz about, you know, specific dates and everything like that, oof. I would fail those. But I did good anyways because my teachers, they knew I was I was good. So they let me retake it and I would, you know, study a lot. Like the only times I ever studied, like I almost never studied. But only times I ever studied was when I knew a quiz was going to come up or some type of test where it had to be and we were related, related to memory. To what you remember about a specific date or time or person or term. All right, the only ways I can remember things was if I tied it to some 
underlying pattern. Like in history, I remember it, you know, much of, you know, uh, American history, much of the World War II and everything like that, much of those dates and times, um, by tying it to, because I had like a timeline in my head and I could see like the, the, the events going on. <laughs> it was kind of like, almost like a movie in my head where I would, you have a date and then you have a scene of what happened <laughs> stuff like that right that's the only way I could really remember things I was never a great retainer of you know specific knowledge it was more about the overlying details and patterns and what I also realized is that I was never a great um, I was never action biased that was my biggest problem growing up that's what I realized you know that I might not be enough. That would be inadequate. It's because I had these ideas of, of hover cars. I would create, you know, little Lego models. I would create Play-Doh models. Well, even then, even then, actually. Most of the time, I would read a whole bunch of books. I would read up on principles and stuff like that. Um, I would think about it. I would think about it a lot. Like, almost every day, I would think about it. But I never really did much to do it unless somebody told me. Unless somebody was like, hey, you need to have, you know, this. You need to have a model. You need to have, you know, um, this, that, and the other. Right? That's the main thing, like, my dad contributed. He's like, you know, you need to have these models. You need to have a patent. You need to have, you know, this, that, and the other. So then I would try to do that and then... It wouldn't really go far, right? He said, "I need to have you know pictures of what your what uh, what my idea was, so I can pitch it." So I started trying to draw, but then I realized I wasn't good at drawing. <laughs> so I tried to learn how to draw. You know, I learned you know a lot about sketching and all that stuff, different um, shading techniques and all this stuff. So I, I actually got to a decent amount where I can draw realistic things. Uh, a decent amount that took a long time that looked like took like two years just to learn how to draw and yeah I knew people like my brother <laughs> who could like had way more skills who could seem to you know draw something who learned how to draw in a matter of like weeks to months and he's still he's still going at it by the way like I never really enjoyed drawing I just did it because it was you know what, what I thought I had to do but he still kind of enjoys drawing. He's still even better at it now, of course. But I realized that about myself is that, you know, I don't seem to be good at applying. I don't seem to be good at applying knowledge. Remember he said I needed um a 3D model because I realized that he didn't really, I don't think he really said it, that my drawings weren't good enough, but I kind of get that impression, right? And I looked at it, I, of course they weren't, you know, they were kind of not great. <laughs> but um, I knew I needed to have some 3D models so that people can, you know, see more things that I was talking about. I was always good at writing. That's one thing I, I was pretty good at. But even that, I wasn't like, I don't... I never really got to writing stories because I don't like, I don't really like characters. 
I like to write because of ideas, because of objects, because I can, you know, describe scenes. I can describe things in my head that makes so much sense to me. I can describe, you know, stories and all that stuff. But when it comes to uh, when it comes to writing a story, like a fictional story or anything like that, most of it centers around the characters, and I don't really care about that too much, right? <laughs> I can't invent people. I mean, yeah, you technically can. You can invent like characters and stuff like that, but my thing was always about inventing tools right that empower people to do whatever they wanted to do that's why i loved hovercars so much i have a few minutes i'm going to go into a little bit more about hovercars because because that was a huge part of my life right that was a huge part of my um gestation <laughs> my uh what do you call it adolescence right as I was growing from a boy into a teenager technically still a boy whatever into a man right much of that has centered around this 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 solution that I thought would help everything that I was thought would solve all of our problems if I invented hover cars I could sell that idea or I can just you know patent it and I can you know be another one of those great inventors you know that was my thing that like I was so huge on that and so it's not just a matter of flying vehicles, right? Like I would literally go down to the first principles. I didn't know what first principles was. Like I never even heard that term until like three years ago. But <laughs> like whenever I try to, I first had this idea of public cars in third grade from, you know, of course, watching, you know, things like Fifth Element, Back to the Future. And then, you know, I had a little assignment one of those mornings. I think I was late to school that day because the bus was stuck in traffic. And um, assignment was something like uh, you had like morning journals, right? You go in the homeroom or whatever the first class was, and the teacher was like, you know, write five for the next for the first five or ten minutes of class, you know, write on this topic, right? And you had these all the time. So this one was um, what was something like around, ooh, excuse me, uh, something around what will be your ideal way of getting to school right in the future or something like that or something i don't know something related to getting to school and i and i talked about i had like a little paragraph about hover cars right like the magic school bus that's where that's my uh, actually the bigger inspiration was magic school bus (laughs) um so i was like you know i want to have a hover bus you know you can fly over the traffic and all this stuff and it could make you know going to school more enjoyable you're really excited because i was never a morning person that was another you know thing i was never a morning person but um, I was like, if I had, if I if I got to go to school in a flying bus, I would be so excited about school. Like everybody would, right? And you can always get to school on time, blah blah blah. And I drew a little sketch of it. And for some reason, this is really weird to me. I still don't know why, but I got an F on that. I got an F on that. And I don't know, something inside me was just like, what the. F- <laughs> right even in third grade i was like what in the world what why well, get enough but me i was never one to complain like i never went to the teacher i never went to my parents about any of this you know and again i i i love school i was good at school you know i didn't get an f on most things i never i didn't fail that class or anything like that but i just remember that assignment i got an f on it and ever since then i was just obsessed about hover cars all right I'm not sure if my teacher thought it was unrealistic or I was playing around or what. I don't know. But it really bothered me to the extent that 
you know, either I think it was later that year or early the next year or whatever, you know, I looked up a book. Um, I was, I don't know how I first started, but I was, you know, just thinking about, okay, how would a flying cars work? Imagine school bus, it seems to have some type of rocket. And Back to the Future, it was like, I don't know, they don't explain it at all. <laughs> but it was just like smooth bottom and it's just floating in the sky. And um, and uh, Fifth Element, same thing, right? They don't really explain it. So I looked up, how, how would you make things float, right? Mag, uh, maglev trains, that was a big thing. That was really the only thing that really floats nowadays as a form of transportation is maglev trains. So I looked that up. Reading, and when I say look it up, I meant like library, because <laughs> we didn't have a computer at the time. Um, but eventually, when we did get a computer, you know, I, I would research, you know, that stuff, that kind of stuff. But most of the time, I was thinking about, you know, how would you make stuff float? So I would like look at electromagnetism, um, um, rocketry, and all this stuff, right? I think it was in middle school we had some type of. Um, aerospace wood cutting class or something like that i don't know and then there i tried to you know create like a, um a maglev train like a little model maglev train or something like that it didn't work <laughs> but eventually when i got in high school i had so many i didn't just have an idea of a hover car i had an idea of how of a mass producible flying vehicle or gliding vehicle, and then it had different models. I had a one that glide, one that you know, basically could. When I say glide, that means it it uses air currents, right? It didn't have wings or anything like that, or it didn't have a project a um, a system that made it fly. It just basically hovered on um, wind currents or something like that. And then it had stuff that actually flew, had stuff that you know ran on water, stuff that ran on just air, right, with no engine. It was like a series of turbines. Um, I entertained the idea of like catching lightning in a bottle and using it as an energy source and <laughs> stuff like that, right? Just anything that would make it unique, that would make it better than these ter- current vehicles and that it weren't gas powered, right? It didn't contribute to pollution. Like I really had a far reaching idea for these things as a kid. And it really amazes me now because I realized like I really had this this big these big ideas like for for a long time but of course they're naive right um that's like the catch like when you're a kid you can have these huge ideas but a lot of times they're unrealistic and so you know growing up i tried to make this thing happen um but most of it was in the theater of my mind and when it came to like doing things like, you know, applying for college, I realized that I didn't really have much to show. I didn't have something I built out of my backyard and or a scrapyard or anything like that. I didn't have, you know, we couldn't afford to go to many clubs. So it wasn't it wasn't really until like the last year, like my senior year, where I was able to go to a whole bunch of clubs because we just happened to have, you know, a little bit more money that year. So I did, you know, wrestling, I did um chess, I did uh, anime club I did beta club I did like everything that I had wanted to do you know I did all of that in my senior year the only other thing I had before that was band was marching band you know it was music and so 
when I went to apply for college, you know, I didn't really have much to show. And again, I wasn't good at memorizing stuff and everything like that. So <laughs> by the my SAT scores weren't good. <laughs> it was like a 1600. And at the time, you know, the highest, most people who went to Ivy League schools that I applied to, they got, you know, around a 2100 to 2400. Perfect score was a 2400 or something like that. And I got 1600. <laughs> twice. I did it. Did that freaking test twice. And so I really felt like I was like, I was just like worthless, you know? I didn't have much to show for all these years of research. And I was just overall just constantly had this feeling of being inadequate. So it wasn't until after high school, you know, well, before I even get into that, you know, that feeling of inadequacy was why I felt, I'm pretty sure that I was depressed because I definitely, you know, had a steep depression. It wasn't clinical. Like I didn't, couldn't afford to go to no, you know, doctor, you know, psychology or psychologist or whatever like that, you know, um, to, to tell me that I was, but I mean, had Google finally in high school, I was able to research that stuff. You know, you hear about depression and stuff like that. I researched that. I'm like, huh, seems about right. <laughs> but even then, it's not like I, you know, it wasn't until like, I think either my senior year or after I graduated, I actually looked up, you know, depression. But when I look back, you know, I definitely was because I just remember everything like when I wasn't thinking about hover cars. The world just seemed to be gray. Like, I was always angry about the world. I was always angry about the situation I was in. I was always angry about myself. I always felt terrible, right? To the point where eventually I just didn't feel. I didn't think I was capable of, of, of you know, making friends, of um, belonging in a the, in the, in the group or anything like that. I didn't feel I had anything worthy to offer people. So I would usually keep to myself. You know, I'd have small, I guess you can call it a friend group, but, you know, I never really had friends to the extent where where people have, you know, talk about friends. (laughs) It was just people I saw at school and we hang out, we kind of hung out together, you know. Um, Don't get me wrong, I had, you know, enjoyable parts of, of school. Like I don't, I don't, I look back in high school and I don't hate it. I was never bullied or anything like that. At one point though, that I do have to admit, like uh, a lot of times I, I kind of wanted to be bullied, just so I could have like that, like hey, somebody's thinking about me, right? <laughs> and just so I can get in the fight, expel some of that, you know, that anger that. Pressure, but that's the bad sort of pressure, right? Because it was an internal pressure on myself. It was an internal pressure on um, my sense of self worth, right? Or it's like a, it's like turning a valve of a boiler too high, and it's just 
boiling inside is just you know a bunch of compressed air and it can like blow at any moment that's what i felt like a lot of times and other times i felt like it was like nothing inside me <laughs> that just felt so freaking worthless i remember looking up things like like i would literally sit down and and research aerodynamics because i when i was applying for college when she was asking you know what what um major would you take i was i would look up to see you know what would be what what majors would would uh contribute to me being able to invent hover cars because maybe i could do it in, in college there's more resources there people i can learn from you know um stuff like that so i saw mechanical engineering or aerospace engineering aeronautics right so i was like all right i'll double in that <laughs> so i would look up you know things related to that um to aerodynamics and aerospace and i would see things like the Bernoulli principle you know see things like thermodynamics fluid fluid dynamics i would look all this stuff up and then that's when it really hit me and that was that was this was in 10th grade 10th 11th grade when i really started to research you know things for college and um and i saw that there was all these equations these mathematical equations that you had to learn right if you wanted to prove that something would you know like the way that they came up with planes and stuff like that the way that they, that they designed planes or anything in that matter was through these equations these mathematical equations you know force equals mass times acceleration type stuff um and i was good i was always good at math in school so i was like all right i i, I do this i figure this stuff out try to find the equations i would need to prove you know um that my designs worked for hover cars like if i needed this amount of air to come into the vehicle you know if the if the fan is this this big you know going this fast then it will take in this amount of air per second we'll go through here you know these through these um other turbines that i designed and will come out the other end with this amount of force and if, it, and that, if that if that force was greater than the weight then it will lift it up right I was gonna prove it. Then I, I I couldn't understand the math. Like force equals mass times acceleration. That's like the most advanced math I could understand. <laughs> we looked at the the Bernoulli principle and other equations in the fluid dynamics. Those maths were just beyond me. And I tried. <laughs> oh, trust me, I tried. Tried for months years really from 10th grade till 12th try to understand these maths I paid so uh, paid much attention i actually asked a lot of questions in those math classes i was in i excelled at math i was actually you know the best student in my math class i finally you know got you know um invited to our elite math club went to a tournament and I was the, the worst one there, the tournament. <laughs> That's when I really realized once again how inadequate I was. But yeah, it's an hour now, so I'm gonna have to end it there. <laughs> don't worry, we'll continue this though. Continue this tomorrow. You know, I don't like ending on a bad note. Cause now I don't feel like that at all. I feel very these were just my origins. <laughs> I feel 
so much better these days, feel so much more ready. I found, you know, my skills. I found, you know, what, I, what I'm good at. But I got to go. So bye-bye. <laughs>